If this is your first time here at the Grove, I want to say welcome. I am not the lead pastor, so uh, actually Lance Williams, our lead pastor, is out on sabbatical right now, so I'm not sure who's going to be filling in next week, but I promise you it'll get better next week, and it will get even better when Lance returns. So, uh, But if this is your first Sunday, um, I just want to tell you, uh, here at the Grove, we exist to invite all people uh, to follow Jesus in all of life. And if you follow Jesus long enough, what you will find is at least two things. You'll be surprised by who ends up coming alongside and following him. And you'll also be surprised by who was following him and is no longer following him anymore. C.S. Lewis once said that when we get to heaven, there will be three surprises. Surprised who's there, surprised who's not there, and surprised by the fact that you're there. And so that's good old C.S. Lewis. It must be true. But I have followed Jesus for over two decades, and it amazes me when I see people following him who I never thought would have followed him to begin with. I uh, did youth work with uh, an organization called Young Life, and I had one uh, kid in particular that I would go up and have, I would go up to the school to eat uh, lunch, and he was very smug and distant, and I would go to football games, and everywhere that kid was, I wanted to go, and I wanted to see him come to faith, and I prayed for him for two years, and never saw him come to faith in Christ. I took him to camp, and uh, never saw him come to faith in Christ, and one day I was at HEB, and uh, this was back in the Beaumont area. I'm at HEB. I'm checking out, and there is that kid, and he's smiling. First time I'd ever seen that kid smile in my life, and I'm thinking, no, that's not him. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go up and say hi to Peyton. No, there's no way. I'll just leave him alone. And I'm just going to enjoy this moment right now and look at this kid smiling. And I thought, no, no, I got to go up to him. I said, Peyton. And he says, Stephen. And he gives me this big hug. And he says, man, I got to tell you what God's done in my life, man. And, and, and so that started conversation. And then I got to see him baptized. And now he is off at Bible college and he's wanting to go into business and be a missionary. And I would have never, ever guessed to have seen this kid. I don't know why, like I prayed for it for two years and God answered my prayer. I mean, uh, so, so I, I have that, but also about 10 years ago, I helped plant a church in North Alabama and I wasn't on staff. I was just a regular guy and, and just had a regular job. And uh, we want to see a, a gospel community planted within our, our, uh, our area. And so me and Four or five other guys would meet on a regular basis and we would have coffee and we'd wake up, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. We'd meet for an hour and a half and we would dream and we would think about what would it look like if we had a church that uh, didn't make everything about a Sunday morning, but actually lived out day to day. And there was all kinds of conversations and planning and strategizing and organizing. And uh, there was one guy in particular that was part of our group who um, really led the way, and he and his wife really modeled the way uh, to our community for engaging in orphan care and, and had a heart for adoption. And they had such an impact, not only on our little church that we were starting, but also in the Department of Human Resources. They had such a great impact upon those people there that um, DHR set aside a room in their building and named it after this family. That's how great of an impact they had. That was almost 10 years ago. Two years ago, they divorced. He's no longer following Jesus. And he has gone to atheism and following his own ration and reason. And there's a lot of anger there. 
There's a lot of hurt there. And we have conversations from time to time. But you follow Jesus long enough and you'll see things like the first story I told you. You'll see things like that story. I, I went to a Bible college and there was a guy who led all of our mission to downtown Dallas and, and our ministry there. And he's since abandoned the faith and now he's married to a man. And he has abandoned the faith. And who has he gone to? He's gone to the ways of the world and the, own, the desires of his flesh. And those are just a couple examples. And we've titled our series in John, That You May Believe. And the reason for it is because in John 20, verse 31, John tells us the reason why he wrote the Gospel of John is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And in believing, you might have life in His name. So if the goal of this series in John is so that you sitting here today might believe, that you might follow Jesus, then when we come to John chapter 6, we come to a watershed event. We read that Jesus' followers are offended by His teaching. Imagine that. <laughs> and they jump ship and they leave. And so the aim of this series is that you might believe. And the aim of this chapter is you might believe in the midst of massive unbelief. Massive cultural unbelief. Massive unbelief in the church. Notice the repetition in verse 60 and verse 66. There's two words that you should begin to feel the weight of this. John chapter 6 verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said. And then again in, in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You remember the number of people that Jesus fed earlier on in John chapter 6? You remember how many there were? Look in John 6 verse 10. Flip back to it just in case you weren't here or you have slept since then, which we all have. John chapter 6 verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so it was nice and comfortable. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So John says, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And John points out there were 5,000 men. Now, why does he do that? Josue rightly said there was probably fifteen to 20,000 people there, which would be a really good time to rise up an army and go take over Rome and just set up God's kingdom right there with fifteen to 20,000 people. Okay, so John points out, though, there were 5,000 men. Why does he do that? Why does he tell us there's 5,000 men? Because when you get to the end of John 6, do you know how many men there are? 12. Actually, when you get to the very end of John 6, there's not 12, there's 11. <laughs> this is a profound, uncertain moment here in Jesus's life. When you get to the end of John 6, you see this, but spill over. There were no chapter and divisions when John was written. So look at John chapter 7, verse 1. I want you to see this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Okay, about in Galilee. Scholars believe, okay, so you have Galilee, which is an area. You have the Sea of Galilee, and at the northern part of that is Capernaum. That's where Jesus has been teaching this whole time. About in Galilee, during that, it probably took a, uh, over, sometime over the course of a year. So he traveled over the course of a year about in Galilee. And when we come to John chapter 7, verse 3, we get the idea that he's in Nazareth, his hometown. 
And let me show you why we get that. John 7, verse 3. So his brothers said to him, <clears throat> said to him leave here and go to Judea. His brothers are there. So he's probably in Nazareth. Okay? He's probably back home. And you know how it is. You set out to try to go conquer the world. Things You have a movement of 5,000 people, and then all of a sudden it tanks, and you're on the edge of failure. So where do you do? What do you do? You move back in with mom. That's about what has happened here with Jesus' ministry. Things have been great. We're going to go conquer Rome. They leave. Time to go move back in with mom. Right? That's what's happened here. And when you look at verse 5 of chapter 7, look who not only who also does not believe in Jesus. For not even his brothers believed in him. Massive unbelief going on here in this chapter. And Jesus, when we see him moving through the rest of the Gospel of John, the unbelief is going to ratchet up higher and higher and higher all the way till you get to chapter 13. And you get to the end of chapter 12, it says, seeing they did not see, hearing they did not hear, and God hardens their heart because of the massive unbelief that they have had. But notice in the midst of all this, Jesus is not rattled. Jesus isn't rattled by all this. I mean, that, this is a room of, I don't know, 150 people or so. What the equivalent would be is that I get up here, say some hard things, tick all of you off, and then it's like, okay, we're going to do this again next Sunday. Host way, I'll see you then. And that's it. <laughs> and all of you are gone. That would be the proportion. So me and Josue will be here setting up chairs and everything else. And Jesus isn't rattled. And we get two clues to this why he's not rattled. Look in chapter 6, verse 64. John interjects two commentaries basically in this narrative. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now John is going to interject his commentary for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. So from the beginning, Jesus knew. He, it, this did not catch him by surprise. He already had a leg up. This unbelief is not, oh no, what am I going to do? He's known this from the beginning. He's already sovereign. He's already in control. He already knows this. And then we're going to get another clue to how Jesus is not rattled. And that is, again, in verse 71. Let's read verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And John now interjects. And Jesus spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay? Think about what's just happened. You've gone from 5,000 to 12 to really 11. And if I'm Jesus, I'm doing damage control here. Right? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, it was just a miscommunication. Let me kind of clarify for you what I meant. Now, here's what Jesus does. Oh, yeah? This is hard for you? Yeah? Well, one of you 12 is Satan. And he walks off. <laughs> right? Like, do you know these 12 that he has? Do you know, the, like, that, that wasn't like, oh, okay, well, Judas, we know it's you. You know, it's probably like Peter. You know? I mean, he, he, he drops a bomb with the rest of the group of people that he has and walks off. He's not rattled. He's resigned. He's resigned not to the will of the people, but to the will of God the Father. He is on mission because the Father has sent him for a particular mission. And his aim is not to please people, but to please God the Father. 
And notice what the objection is here in verse 60. Look in verse 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What has Jesus done here? He's challenged their deepest belief system. He's come in and He's confronted their deepest, most treasured beliefs. Namely, that they themselves are able to meet the demands of God. We see here in verse 63, look what He says. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. In the Greek where it says, the flesh is of no avail, we don't pick up the seriousness of His statement, but in the Greek it's a double negative. The flesh is of no avail, not even at all, Jesus says. And their, their deeply held belief is that the flesh is of avail and that they can, they, they can carry out the works of God by themselves. You can see this in verse 28. Let's flip back to verse 28. John 6, verse 28. This is where the conversation starts. Then they said to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So the assumption is, I can do the works of God. That's their, their fundamental, deeply held belief. I can do the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. So they said to Him, well then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So here's essentially what they're saying. Jesus, meet me on my own terms, and my own criteria, my own requirements. And if you can do that, I'll believe you. And I'll follow you. You see, underneath every unbelief that you have, and that I have, and that we have, underneath every unbelief, is actually what? Another belief. No one is neutral. Underneath every unbelief is a belief. No one here this morning is just objective and neutral and can figure it all out. We all have a commitment to something. I don't know if you uh, are on the Pecan Grove Facebook page, but this past week there was, uh, there was a man in Pecan Grove who believed he was dead. And so he goes to the doctor and he says, Doctor, I'm dead. The doctor says, No, no, you're not. And he tried to convince him that he, he wasn't dead. So he did a series of tests. And, and, uh, and the man still didn't believe. He said, No, I'm, I'm dead, Doc. I'm, I'm dead. And the doctor was ticked. And he said, Okay, fine. Do dead people bleed? And he said, No, Doc, they don't. So he took out his pocket knife and he cut the man on his arm. And the man looks at his arm, looks at the doctor, looks at his arm, looks at the doctor, and he said, well, I'll be darned. Dead people do bleed. Right? So, I mean, because underneath, what is it? Underneath every belief or every unbelief is a fundamental belief. Underneath every decommitment or non-commitment is a commitment to something else. And what happens to this man's fundamental belief when he's faced with the fact that he's not dead? He still chooses to believe what? He's dead. Right? He has a presupposition. He has a belief already. And they say in John chapter 6, verse 30, what do you do to perform that we may see and believe you? Now we know that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. We see that in chapter 6, verse 59. And so it must have been a particular day, kind of like this. And the Scripture reading must have been uh, from Exodus 16, where 
uh, God feeds Israel manna from heaven. Because someone pipes up in here in chapter 6, verse 31. And if you look at it, they say, What work do you perform, Jesus? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And, and then they, they want to get biblical, right? As, is, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. <laughs> do you see the irony here? What happened in chapter 5? He gave them bread from heaven to eat. <laughs> Did Jesus not? If I'm Jesus, I'm going like, bro, like ever since Cana and Galilee, when I turned water into wine, you want signs and miracles? Ever since last chapter, we're, we're, like I walked on water. Josue point out some of them thought that he teleported. No, he didn't teleport. He walked on water. He's the true and greater Moses. And, and they're standing here saying, hey, we need some signs to believe. God gave us bread from heaven. If I'm Jesus, I'm like, no, you believe. You just believe in yourself. And what's stunning is that unbelief often thrives in the most religious context. These are religious people. See, even believers on some level are unbelievers. Unbelief can thrive in the most religious context. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're here this morning. You say, I'm too bad. I've done too many bad things. I I know, sure, God forgives people, but He can't forgive me. No way. No way. Well, what is that? It's unbelief. In some way, you were insisting on being your own Savior. In some way, you were saying, my my." Sin is greater than the Savior. What is that? That's a belief in that you and that what you have done is more sovereign than Jesus. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, knew this well. He was a slave trader. God opened his eyes. I once was blind, but now I see, right? Saved a wretch like me. He was a slave owner and he greatly contributed to slavery until God opened his eyes and he had a conversation with a depressed man. And this man, he writes to him and he says, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, but also too low of an opinion of the person, work, and promises of Jesus the Redeemer. You complain about your sin, but when we examine your complaints, they're so full of self-righteousness and unbelief and pride and impatience that they are little better than the worst of evils you complain of, sir. So why do these people walk away from Jesus? Why do they walk away? Because fundamentally their belief system is, well, if I haven't earned it, And I won't accept it. If I didn't work for it, then I'm not going to accept your gift. Fundamentally, all of us, see, these people are fine with Jesus being generous. As long as He's generous in response to what they do. He's fine with Jesus being a, a a generous rewarder. But what they won't have and what you and I won't have fundamentally every single day is that we will not, we would rather Jesus be a generous rewarder, but not a gracious redeemer. And in chapter 6, verse 61, what are these guys doing? Look in chapter 6, verse 61. 
But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling. This is the same word used of Israel when God, you know the story, God delivers them from Egypt and um, God delivers them and Egypt says, fine, get out of here. And on their way out, they give them all the riches and the wealth of, of Egypt. And, and so now they've gone from being slaves to, to basically king and they've ransacked Egypt. And while they are not even far away from Egypt with gold and silver and, and all the riches of Egypt rattling in their pockets, they say, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. And they start grumbling. It's the same thing. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. These people are the true and greater Israel. God performs untold miracles and yet they grumble. And why do they grumble? Because of unbelief. They knew better than God and God would, they would be much better off if God would just let them do the things that they want to do the way they want on their own terms. And why do you and I grumble this morning? It's a funny word, grumbling. It's the sound your stomach makes, right? It's very appropriate because you just talked about bread. It's the sound your stomach makes, right? Whenever you're hungry and you're not satisfied. And when your stomach grumbles, it doesn't matter if your kids are throwing a fit, but at some point, if your stomach is grumbling to the point um, to where you just can't take it anymore, it doesn't matter if your kids are embarrassing you. What you say is, just go do your own thing. i got to give attention to my stomach. Right? Because your stomach is saying, right here, I'm the most important person in the world. Right here. And, and what are they doing? They're grumbling. Us, Jesus, we're the most important. We get to call the shots. That's why they're grumbling. Unbelief. Essentially what grumbling signifies, I grumble because I want things to be about me. And I not only want food to be satisfying to me, I also want eternal life and the way that God operates and does His kingdom to be about me. Because ultimately, I believe in me. Grumbling is rooted in unbelief. So how do you kill grumbling? You're not going to like it. <laughs> the point of this text is people get ticked. You're not going to like it. So Lance at thegrovechurch.net, okay? All right? It's really hard. John 6, verse 65. This is how Jesus confronts their grumbling with an even harder truth. And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. And when Jesus says, This is why I told you, He's referring back, underline this word if you're into underlining in your Bibles, John 6, verse 65, the word granted. And then we can look in the context and you can look in verse 43. And this is where Jesus said it. Verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. There it is again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So underline that word draws. Grant and draws. Now we've underlined those two. And what's the effect of the Father drawing them? Look at the next sentence. And I will raise him up on the last day. There's an effect here. Now, let's go back even more. We're looking in context here. Verse 37 and verse 38. 
all that the Father gives me. Underline that word gives. Grant, draw, and gives. All the Father gives me will come to me. All the Father draws will come to me. All the Father grants will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Granted, draws, and gives all have the same meaning. They're synonyms here. There is no reason in the context to think that they have different meanings. They're all the same meaning. God the Father, essentially, this is what it means. Jesus, this is amazing here in John 6, gets Trinitarian. He calls Himself the Son of Man. He says the Spirit gives... Life, the Father grants. And so what Jesus does here is He says, I have descended and I'm going to ascend. The Spirit gives life. The Father grants. And so we believe that God is one, but He's also three. And that's a beautiful mystery. God is one in essence. And and the difference between the Father, Son, and Spirit is their role and how they work in the relationships. And we see that here. The Son comes and He dies and He gives His life. The Spirit seals those people. He gives them life. The Father grants and enables people. This is the work of the Trinity in salvation. So catch the logic. Jesus says this. Do not grumble. That is, unbelief among yourselves. That salvation is by your own will and your own doing. Don't think that you were in charge here. And you get to call the shots of how God works and how eternal life is given. Look in verse 62. Look what Jesus says in John 6, verse 62. You take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Jesus is saying, hey, are you offended about me descending? Are you offended about me coming and giving my life for the world? Does that offend you? If that offends you, buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because what if you saw me in glory where I was before, wrapped in power, sovereign in in, uh, might, ruling and reigning over the nations? He uses the term son of man. The the word son of man is a loaded theological term. They would have gotten it from Daniel 7, where one appears before God. He rides on the clouds. We sing about that, coming on the clouds. Okay. So he comes on the clouds and God gives him a kingdom and he receives it. And it all rule over nation and people and tongue and tribe over the cosmos. And they worship and serve him. And Jesus says, that's me. And then he says, it's the Spirit who gives life. They would have all been hoping for, like Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, there's a valley of dry bones. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus, right? This, the Spirit's like the wind. It comes and goes however it wishes. You must be born again. And this is what Jesus is saying. The Spirit is who gives life. In Ezekiel 37, there's a valley of dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel, speak to those bones. And He speaks to them. And the Spirit comes and assembles them and turns them into an army and creates the people of God. And all of these people would have been hoping that God would come and like in Genesis 1, recreate a new humanity starting with Israel. And Jesus says, you're offended by me saying I'm the bread from heaven and that I give my life? 
what's really going to offend you is when you see that God is moving all of history to make it about me. And He's gathering a people to make it about me and not yourselves. In fact, Genesis 1 is about me. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. No one can come to me unless he is enabled to do so by the Father. This is what it means to be born of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Everything you need to know about John's in this first 18 verses. John says this, But to all who did receive Him, so receive Him, come to Christ, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but what? Of God. Now there are some who read this passage and they say, Stephen, you're right. No one can come to Jesus unless God draws them. And God draws everyone. And the decisive factor is they don't provide the willingness and the faith. And, and so uh, they don't believe. And that's one particular view here. But here's why that will not work. You remember the point of verse 37 and verse 44? Look at it again. John 6, verse 37. All the Father gives me. We've already seen these are synonymous. Gives, draw, grant, enable, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the same point he's going to make in verse 44. Look at it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or gives him. And what's the effect? And then I may or I may not raise him up on the last day. He will. That's right. I will raise him up on the last day. So those who are given will be raised. Jesus will not fail, which is really good to hear when you go from 5,000 to 11. So here's what we can say. All that the Father draws or grants will come. Jesus says, this is why I told you. So let's ask, what is the reason He told them that no one can come unless it's granted by the Father? Look at the text. What does it say? John 6, verse 65. And He said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. What, what is the this? It's the unbelief. It's the Judas. There's a Judas among you. This is, there's a Judas among you. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father draws, grants, and gives to me. And the Father didn't give Judas. And that's why Judas is going to act the way he acts. It's not that God stiff-armed him out. It's not that Judas wanted in. He left him in his sin and in his selfishness and in his self-righteousness. So it doesn't work to say that the Father draws, gives, grants everyone because there is a Judas. So here's what this means this morning. If Stephen Mishral ever jumped ship, I'm telling you right now, if Stephen Mishral ever jumps ship and abandons faith in Christ, it's 
not because of any lack in Jesus. It's because I was drawn to the accolades that comes from standing right here. I was drawn to the, hey, good job, Stephen, or hmm, never thought about that. Or I was drawn to the church leadership side of it. Or I was drawn to systems and structures and planning. Or I was drawn to humanitarian reasons, right? We want to see good things done. I was drawn to all those things, but I was not drawn to Christ for Christ's sake. I came to Christ because I wanted me to be made much of. Oh, how unhelpful it is that we would have churches in America that make it about your self-esteem. You don't need self-esteem. You need Christ-esteem. And people leave because they didn't get their self-esteem met. Life sucked and life got hard and you got cancer and you got sick and you said, I thought it was about me. I'm out. But you never came to love Jesus. So if you're a Christian here today, the only reason this is so is because it was granted you by the Father. And listen to me, I know that this is hard. I kicked against this for years. Hated this text. So when Lance is like, hey, I'm preaching John. Sure, man, where are we at? John 6, great. Okay, you going to tear your Achilles? Cool. Okay, great. Like, thanks, man. I considered it an honor because the wrestling that took place in my heart is what opened my eyes to see that the only reason I am a Christian and my neighbor is not is because God, even slightly, not because God even slightly thought I was a little more smart or had a little more access to truth or a little more open or a little more repentant or a little more humble. Now, the reason I'm a Christian this morning is, isn't because I figured it out and so many around me have not. The reason I'm a Christian this morning is, is, is not because of my cultural context and I just so happened to be raised in a Christian home. The reason I'm a Christian this morning is sheer sovereign grace by God. The flesh is of no avail. and The decisive thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is not our will, as John says. In fact, the only decisive thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. The Spirit gives life. The Father gives, grants Draws. Do you not feel God working in your heart this morning? Do you not feel Him calling you? Do you see Christ as all-sustaining? That is what belief is. We so think that belief is, well, if I could just have intellectual. No, 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 no. No. Belief is about your affections. What do you love most? What do you think about most? What draws your heart most? What Jesus is talking about here is grace. Unmerited favor and kindness. And if you're a Christian, you ought to be humbled by the fact that even coming to Jesus is given you, even your faith that you have is given you by God the Father. So there is no room for bragging. There is no room for boasting. And you know what else there is no room for? Grumbling. 
what do you have that you did not receive? We grumble because we think, I deserve to have my belly full. I deserve to have life go my way. But if you're saved by sheer grace, that means you didn't deserve any of it. I told you that this is hard. And um, it was hard then. It's hard right now. Imagine me being preaching this and your stairs right now. Your stomach's grumbling. Typical objection is this. Well then, Stephen, that's not fair. And you're right. It's not fair. It's hard. But you know what fair is? The wages of sin is death. Hell is fair. You want to talk biblical categories. Hell fair. But that's not the problem most of us have right now. The problem is the premise that we often sneak in is that if it's not up to the basis of me opening my heart or me having the final say or my own will or even anything that I can do, then we sneak in the premise that God must be arbitrary. and He just does whatever He wants. And we trust Him. And that's a false premise. Because all throughout Scripture, we see that God is wise. And so what I do before this truth is I bow my knee and I humble myself and I say, God, I, sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. But I trust that when it's all said and done, what doesn't seem fair or wise will absolutely be fair and wise. This is totally consistent with coming freely. This is totally consistent with coming freely. And here's how we see that. What does it look like to be drawn by God? Look in verse 67. We'll wrap up here. Jesus said to the twelve, You want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, question. What does it look like to be drawn, to be given by God the Father? Answer, who else will I go to but Jesus? This isn't dragging and, and kicking and screaming, well, I guess I've got to be a Christian. No, this is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I, blinders were on, but now I see, and why would I go anywhere else but to Jesus? That's what it means to be drawn by the Father. Jesus says, are you going to not believe? You're going to grumble and go away? And Peter is not speaking as a robot. He is speaking as someone who has come to know a person. There's been this process of wrestling and doubts and questions and hardships and watching. Peter isn't speaking like someone who is following Jesus to have his felt needs met. He sees that Jesus is all-sufficient and is unique among all approaches to life. In fact, he says this, that Jesus, who, what, is he, what title does he give to Jesus here at the end of verse 69? That you are the Holy One of God. That's a very unique phrase, Holy One of God. It only shows up a couple times in the Bible, Mark and in Luke. And both times, those are confessions that demons say about Jesus. So this morning, it's not enough that you believe titles about Jesus. 
not enough that you believe theological truths about Jesus. The demons even believe those. You know what's so astonishing here about Peter's statement? To whom shall we go? My stomach is grumbling, turning. Who will fill my need but you, Jesus? You are my all-sufficient treasure, my all-sufficient joy. You are it. You're all. That's it. That's what it means to be drawn by God, that your eyes would be open to that truth. So here's my question this morning. Some of you might hear this and you say, well, Stephen, I don't see Jesus that way. And I guess if you're saying if God doesn't draw and He doesn't give and He doesn't grant, well, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I guess I just, you know, whatever. I guess I'm not in. I suppose God hasn't drawn me. Suppose you stop supposing and you just come to Christ. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in Israel. Here's what you say. You look at massive unbelief and you say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Change my paradigms. Change my presuppositions. Give me new belief. And if you'll do that, you'll see your it's not about you'll see that Christianity is not fundamentally about being good and bad. It's about being humble and prideful. And if you'll come to him on those terms, humble, you'll see he can change you in ways that you would never have thought possible. So here's my question. To whom will you go? You'll go to someone or to something. We all will. We all will go to someone or something or we'll go to that beautiful vision that we see every morning in the mirror ourselves. What I want to point out is no one is neutral in the midst of massive unbelief. Will you see those unbeliefs are actually beliefs in something? You believe in something or someone. And to whom will you go? Let's pray. Father, hard truths that your son has said here. But they are gracious truths. They are good truths for us because they strip us of all of our pride. and Put us in our place. And humble us. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would do just that. You would give life. You love to save. You love to make much of your son. So, Father, would you this morning work in our hearts, free us from the American dream, free us from self help that is so prevalent in our churches. And move us to Christ. Lord, if you don't do it, no one can. So we say this morning of your son, to whom shall we go? In Jesus' name.